When I read Romans 11, one of my favorite verses of Scripture is when Peter, I believe it was in 2 Peter, said that the writings of Paul are hard to understand. And this is a hard chapter, hard to understand. There are some difficult things here in this chapter. It helps to keep it in perspective again. And if you remember, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, the last two things he said there is that nothing will separate us from the love of God, and God is working all things together for good to those who love God and who are called of God. And then, having said that, it's as though he anticipates that people would say, well, if that's true, then what about Israel? Because it sure doesn't look like everything is working together for them, and it sure doesn't look like that they are still walking in the love of God. And so he spends three chapters talking about Israel. Chapter 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 9, remember, he raised the question, well, why aren't they saved? And he says, they are chosen. They are the chosen people of God. Israel is God's chosen nation. He elected them. He chose them. But they aren't saved. And they aren't saved, not because of God's choice, but because of their own willfulness, in that they sought righteousness by their own works, by their own merit, rather than by faith. And that's why they aren't saved. And so that's Israel in the past. Chapter 10, Israel in the present. And here he says their problem is not that they didn't know about Christ. They are not ignorant. But rather they are willful and disobedient. Verse 21 of chapter 10 where he says, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Their problem is not ignorance concerning Christ. Their problem is disobedience and obstinacy. And now in chapter 11, he raises the issue, well, does God have a future then for Israel? Because if if God is working altogether for good and there is no separation from the love of God, then it would seem that there is a future for Israel. And yet we look at Israel and go, God is finished. He has washed his hands. Is that true? And that's why the question of chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And then Paul's first proof in history that God has not rejected Israel is the fact that Jews are being saved. And Paul was a Jew. I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. If there were no Jews being saved today, then we could say God has rejected his people. But there are many Jews being saved. And that tells us that God loves his people and he has not rejected them. Second evidence that God is not finished and has not rejected Israel is that there is a remnant to this present day. Now, sometimes it may seem that that remnant doesn't exist. And so he calls our attention to the time of Elijah. And Elijah thought he was the only one left who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And God says, only one? Elijah, I have 7,000. Now, that's a remnant, but it's a lot more than you think. And in the application that Paul is making is that even today, it may look like God is not doing anything with Israel, but he is doing much more within the hearts of the Jewish people than what we think. And so we tend to underestimate when it comes to what God is doing with those people groups where it looks as though nothing is happening. And that has been the history of the church. 
We see that in China when the missionaries were kicked out. And we said, what's going on? And then once the doors start to open up again, we saw that there are not just a few million people, but tens of, me, tens of millions, some people say, in excess of 100 million people that now know the Lord in China. Same thing in other countries, the, the former Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain. There were countries that we thought those people have no chance of hearing the gospel. As far as we know, there are no Christians present at all. And once the Iron Curtain came down, we, said, we found we couldn't have been more mistaken. That God is working in the darkest corners of the earth in ways that we cannot imagine. And those places where it seems that nothing is happening, many times there is much more happening. That's not to say the majority is coming to Christ But it is to say God is at work. He has his remnant. And here he has a remnant with Israel to this present day. And that tells us if God is is concerned with maintaining a remnant of people, then God is still concerned with the people as a whole. Then he says, bringing it down to verse 6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, speaking of salvation. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. Now, remember why? Back in chapter 9, they have not obtained it because they are seeking righteousness on the basis of works. It's not that they have not obtained because God has silenced them, because God has, has isolated them to unbelief and to not being saved. They have not obtained because they sought righteousness as though it were based on works and not on faith. And so they have not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And now we come back again to the sovereignty of God. God chooses and God hardens, and it is absolute the Scripture affirms this. But again, it's not that He just does this in a vacuum. We understand that God has hardened Israel because they first hardened themselves. And in this, and as, he, as, as was the case with Pharaoh that was cited back in chapter 9. But here he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Why did God do this? Because they hardened their hearts specifically toward the Lord Jesus Christ. When will that hardness be removed? When will that veil be removed from their eyes? Second Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 3, 14 to 16 says that when they choose to believe, the veil of unbelief will be removed. And so again, it comes down to they have hardened their hearts, and in turn, God has turned them over to hardening. But that hardening can be lifted at the moment that any of them choose to believe. I say then, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And again, the most emphatic negative that can be stated in the Greek language. May it never be. So they have stumbled, but they have not fallen from that position that God has chosen them for. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So God has saved Gentiles. Most of us in this room would be Gentiles. God has saved us for one purpose, not the only purpose, but one of the purposes of our salvation is that Jewish people would be made jealous by what they see to be true in our lives. Principally, they would see that it is God working through the church now to bring blessing 
to bring salvation, to bring the light of the glory of God to all the nations. The very purpose that God raised Israel up for, to be a light of the glory of God to all the nations so that the glory of God would fill the earth, is the purpose that God has raised up the church for, to make Christ known. And through that, to bring, to bring blessing in every place the church is. Now, again, this is not to say the world recognizes this. The world does not always recognize the blessing of the church in its midst to its society. But it is, nonetheless, the truth. There is no greater presence in any society than the presence of the church in terms of bringing blessing. And there are many people in the world who do recognize that that the greatest thing that they have going for them is the presence of a Christian witness in their community, of a functioning church. It should be that way for the Jewish people. They ought to be that blessing to the world, but they aren't any longer. Verse 12, Now if their transgression be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So Paul says, even though my ministry is to Gentiles, God has not called me to Jews. I long for Jews to be saved. I want Israelites to come to Christ. And if, and if, and if Gentiles coming to Christ makes them jealous... Because they see the hand of God, they see the activity of the Spirit in their lives, they see the freedom and the joy and the peace that comes from having their sins forgiven, they see community and they see life and they see generosity, then if that's what it takes for them to get jealous and to say they have what we should have, I want what they have, then Paul says, then may more and more Gentiles come to Christ. Because what I'm after is to see Israel Come to know the Lord. Israel's rejection in the sense that they have rejected Christ and are no longer that channel of redemption and blessing that God raised up Israel for means that the church now is that channel of blessing and redemption. Their failure has resulted in our blessing. And the principle that Paul is saying, then how much more our blessing will be when Israel turns to Christ. Now, we've already been given all the blessings in the heavenly places. We've been made complete in Christ. We've been made partakers of the divine nature. We have all of Christ given to us. How much more blessing could we have than what we already have? And yet Paul says, if their, if their failure, their transgression has resulted in blessing to the Gentiles. How much more blessing you will have when they turn to Christ. So what's the more blessing? And as I've thought about this, it seems to come down to one principle that Scripture has running all the way through it. And that is that Jesus is the King, first and foremost, of the Jews. He is the Son of David. He came into this world to rule over Israel and from Israel to rule over all the nations of the earth. That in his hand is the hand of the scepter that rules over the nations of the world. But he is the son of David, of the tribe of Judah, 
And he will reign as a Jewish king over the nation of Israel and hence over the nations of the world. For him to reign as king, and what Christian doesn't want this world to be right? That every nation is functioning the way God intended to the glory of God. That every nation is truly living to the glory of God. Where neighbors love each other and aren't a threat to each other. There aren't the needs of oppressive governments. You can trust your government because it is a righteous government because the righteous one is ruling over all. We all long for this. We want not just to be right with God in our own hearts. We want our nations to be right with God. We want this world to function the way God has intended for this world to function. It is the longing of our hearts, the prayer of our hearts. It won't happen until Israel receives Jesus as her king. And that is the greater blessing. When Israel finally is saved, when Israel says, Jesus is our king, Jesus is the Messiah, and then Jesus says, now I can come to my people. I came to them once and they rejected me. And I will not come again until they receive me. And when they receive Jesus as their king, when Israel is saved, the greater blessing, the only greater blessing we can have than we've already received is that this world will be made right. It's not going to be made right by laws, not by kings, not by, by congressmen and senators or presidents, as important as elections are. There's only one thing that's going to make this world right, and that is when Jesus rules over it. And he will not rule over this world until Israel receives him as her king. If just following on that point, if you'll look at a couple of passages of Scripture with me, if you go back to the, Matthew, to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew 21, this is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, just immediately prior to his crucifixion. And as he comes into Jerusalem, and he's riding on the foal of a donkey... It says in, in, um, in verse 8, And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on, in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after him were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, the King of Israel. That's what Son of David signifies. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, that's very important. Now, go over. They rejected him right after that. The Jewish leadership did. Go over to chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 37. Matthew 24, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who, sent to, who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And here's the key verse. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they just said that in chapter 21. But they rejected him as quickly as they said it. And Jesus says, I will not come again, is his point. Until you, Israel, say what you've already said once before, and this time you mean it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at Acts with me to see how Peter picks up on this 
in Acts chapter 3, when he's preaching to the crowds there in the temple complex. These would have been Jews and the few Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. So in effect, all of them are Jews, because you couldn't be in the temple without being a Jew. And he says to the Jews concerning Christ, who they had disowned and they had crucified, and God had raised from the dead, picking it up in verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. Brethren, because he's a Jew speaking to Jews, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, Israel. This is who he's speaking to. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, which happens when every person receives Christ. But then look at this. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That, this is talking about a change of circumstances. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, the Jews. That's the context. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. The, I don't know, a clear passage in the New Testament where Peter is saying, Listen, folks, if you want your sins forgiven, you must repent and turn to Jesus. But it's not just about having your sins forgiven. If you want Christ, the Messiah, to rule as the Scripture says that He would, heaven is going to keep Him there until you, Israel, repent as a nation. And then God will send Him from heaven. But He is going to stay in heaven and will not rule over this earth until you as Israel, heaven must receive him until the period of restoration of all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time until the present. And so again, it's laid out in scripture. We see it also in the book of Revelation that there is no physical coming of Christ to the earth until the physical nation of Israel receives Jesus as its literal king. And folks, I really think this is why Satan is so hell-bound on wiping out the Jewish people. And Revelation speaks to this as well. The scripture tells us in the book of Revelation there's coming a day when Satan and all of his demons will be cast out of heaven. They will have no more access to the presence of God. And when they, when they are cast out of heaven to earth, and there's many, there's many believers living on earth at that time. People who have come to faith in Christ during the tribulation time. And Satan's focus is not on Gentiles who believe in Jesus. His focus is simply on Jewish people, whether or not they believe in Jesus. And you read it. He is trying to wipe out every Jew on the face of the earth during that time. Why? And you say, what is the point of this, it's just an insane, insatiable anger and hatred toward a people that can do nothing to Satan unless their salvation is the key thing that has to happen for Jesus to physically rule over this world. And I believe Satan knows it. That has been laid out for us plainly in Scripture. This is not to say that the rapture can't take place at any time. The return of Christ in the air for his people, there is nothing that has to happen for that to happen at any moment. But for Christ to physically reign on this earth again, the Jewish people have to be saved. And they will be. 
Going back to our text in Romans 11, picking it up where it gets really hard. He says that he starts using these, these figures, these analogies, these metaphors. Verse 16, for if the first piece of dough is be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. So there's a lump and there's the root. And then he's going to, he says, well, I kind of like the root better, so let's stick with the root. So he starts talking about roots and branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were, gra- they were broken off for their unbelief. And you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Wow. And then I just go, man, Lord. This is one of those places where you go, is there, a, you, know, can you, you know, remember when the disciples were saying, well, what did that parable mean? And, and then Jesus would interpret it. This is one of the first passages I'm going to ask Jesus about when we get to heaven. This is a hard one. But it does seem, and, the, and the, one of the reasons it gets complicated here is because Israel, later on, we're going to be told in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And he just told us that, that Israel will be grafted back in. And so the natural thing here to assume is that the grafting in speaks of salvation. Therefore, the breaking off would speak of losing your salvation. But he's already told us so emphatically throughout Romans that you can't lose your salvation. Remember again, Romans 8, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Remember Romans 5, that, we, that you have been justified by faith in Christ and we stand in this hope. We stand in the grace of God. And then the words for redemption that are used where it means that you can never be sold back into bondage again. And so there's many, many statements that he's made simply here in the book of, of Romans to say nothing about the rest of the New Testament that emphatically declare that what God has done, who are we to undo? We can't undo the salvation that God has given to us. It is 100% the work of God and it cannot be undone by man. So then what's he saying? If this is not about salvation, what's it about? I would take this, the view that it's about blessing. The olive tree, the vine, and the fig tree were all used symbolically of blessing. So when God prophesied concerning Israel before they went in and even after they were dispersed and they were going to come back in, he spoke about a millennial reign of the Messiah. He said, every man will sit under his fig tree. Every man will have his own vineyard. And those are, those are figures of blessing and prosperity. And I think what he's simply saying is that Israel should be walking in the blessings of God. They are clearly not. They are loved by God. They are still the people of God. And God's purpose for them has yet to be fulfilled. But they are not enjoying the blessings of God. We are. Now Israel, by its rejection of Christ, see they never were saved. They have always been the chosen people of God. 
under a covenant relationship with God, but it has never been the case that the majority of Israel was saved. It has always been the remnant. So it can't be that Israel was once saved and lost their salvation because they were never saved. That's Paul's point. The day is coming when they will be saved. But through this point, up to this point in history, it has always been only a remnant. So the covenants, the choosing, none of those things caused Israel to be saved. They had to put their faith in God's um, substitutionary atonement in the person of Jesus Christ. And when they rejected Christ, then they rejected even the blessings that were theirs by virtue of the covenants. But those covenants were not severed. The covenants were not broken by Israel's rejection of, of God and of his um, Savior for us, Christ. So he's saying Israel has not, is not walking in the blessings, and we too can forfeit the blessings that we have. Not forfeit our salvation, but that privileged role of being the blessing to society that God has raised us up to be. I don't think he's talking necessarily individually, though it may apply to the individual Christian. He is certainly speaking corporately. Even as he's talking about corporate Israel, the corporate church. God intends for the church corporately in every community that we're in to be the greatest blessing that that community has. But for that to happen, we have to be walking in faith and obedience or we will not be receiving the blessing that God intends for us, and in turn will not be the blessing that God intends for us. So it's not just because we're saved that now we're such a great blessing to people. Israel's blessing that she was to experience, and then in turn to convey to others, would be because of a faith and obedience relationship. And it's the same for us today, I truly believe. That a church can basically be present and ineffective, because it is not walking in the blessings of God through faith and obedience. That's the hard part. Let's move on very quickly. Verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. And then he's going to say this. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. It is not 100% of Israel. God has a remnant. It is partial. And then secondly, it is temporary has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved. Does that mean every man, woman, boy and girl? Very likely. But at least means the vast majority. The vast majority, not the minority, no longer the remnant, but the majority, a super majority, will be saved. From the standpoint of the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies. But from God's standpoint, and this is where Paul's really bringing it down to what he wants us to to hear, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, for many, many years, I read 1129 as being a statement that concerns me as a Christian. And that is true. It does concern us, but only but by way of application, though. Because this statement is not about Christians, per se. It is about Israel. What God has said concerning Israel. 
the gifts that God has given Israel and the calling of God upon Israel will never change. If it does change, then God is unfaithful. How does that apply to me as a Christian? It speaks of my salvation too. That I have received the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. I am now one of God's called, one of God's chosen, and nothing is going to change it. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If they can be revoked for any reason whatsoever, then what confidence can you have that you are truly saved and will remain saved? There can be no assurance of our salvation if there is any reason that we could ever postulate that God would, would not remain true to His promises, to His Word, to Himself. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And then he's going to close the chapter by saying, what's God doing? And he says, I'll tell you what he's doing. God is silencing every mouth. The Gentiles, how, how, why is it so easy for Gentiles to get saved? Basically, Paul's trying to say in these chapters. Because they know they have no grounds for salvation. They know they are without hope. They know the promises weren't given to them. The patriarchs are not part of their line. They know that the covenants weren't given to them. They know the word of God was not given to them. They know that Jesus, the Messiah, was not a Gentile. He was a Jew. They go, we are totally excluded. And we know we can never merit by our goodness the righteousness of God. And so all they can do is stand before God as helpless, empty-handed beggars and simply receive. And that's why Paul's saying salvation is coming to the Gentiles because they have nothing to stand on. And all they can do is cry out to God for His mercy. And why is it so hard for Jews to get saved? Because to this day, they're standing on their lineage, on their heritage, on their relationship to Abraham, that the law was given to them, that the promises were given to them. They see themselves at the top of the pyramid. And God says, and as long as they're trusting in those things, which are the gifts of God, they will never be saved. And so God is silencing Israel. Into, uh, he's shutting them up because of their own disobedience that he might show mercy to them and in turn mercy to the world. Let me wrap this up by just summarizing this chapter with some key points. Number one, God has not rejected Israel. But there are some, some corollary thoughts that come out of that. The church is not Israel. Clearly in this passage, he is speaking of the physical descendants of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Paul says, I am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. The church is not Israel. Israel is the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the church is Israel, then God has rejected Israel. That, to me, seems to be what Paul's argument would be here. And he has not rejected Israel. There are many people today that are saying that the church has become spiritual Israel. 
and that all the promises and all the blessings of Israel are now the churches. And yet in the same breath say God has not rejected Israel, but he has transferred all of their blessings and all their promises to the church and they are no longer for Israel and there is no future for Israel. And I just go, you know, Romans 11 is hard to understand, but I don't see how you can get that from this chapter. God has a future for these people. He has not rejected them. Israel was, number two, the channel of blessing, the channel of redemption, and it will be again. And I believe that time will be after the rapture of the church. The church has been removed from this earth, and God will raise up Israel to once again be the channel of redemption, to be a light of the glory of God to all the nations of the earth. Until that time, we are not in the physical kingdom of Christ. Satan, Scripture says, is still the ruler of this world. And this is very important because there again are major doctrines and theologies being taught today that are predicated upon the belief that Jesus' kingdom has come. And that we simply now, by faith, need to be appropriating all the benefits and blessings of that kingdom. And yet, Paul is telling us there is a major not yet to our faith. Jesus' kingdom, we know from Scripture, comes after all the enemies of the Gentiles are destroyed. After all the nations have been witnessed to, Matthew 24, 14. After the gospel of the kingdom has been preached to every nation... Then, he says, he, com- he comes. The end comes. And then Israel will, and then the, Jesus' kingdom comes after all Israel is saved and recognizes him as the Messiah. But at this present time, there is a spiritual aspect to his kingdom, absolutely. But it is, a, it is a, only in a limited picture of what his kingdom will be on earth. So we don't need to work for his kingdom, folks. We really need to understand this. We cannot usher his kingdom in. It's not going to happen by human agency. The only way that we could do anything to usher in the kingdom of Jesus is maybe to see Jews come to Christ. Because it depends again on all the nations hearing and it depends upon Israel turning to Christ. And not until both those things happen will he reign physically on this earth. So again, all the elections in the world are not going to bring in his kingdom. Electing people with the same mindset as us is not going to bring in his kingdom. His kingdom will come in when he comes. Daniel, um, throughout the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, but, but just looking at Daniel. Remember that prophecy of the, of the, of the statue that, where Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, the head of gold, arms of silver, and then he gets down to the feet of clay, a mixture of clay and iron, And then it says, Then a stone cut out of a mountain without hands was hurled against the feet of the statue, and the whole statue was destroyed. And that stone became a mountain which filled the earth. And when we look through Daniel, we saw that that mountain in Babylonian culture was a picture of a kingdom. And what the clear message and interpretation that Daniel gave to that, he says, There is going to come a king who will rule over this whole earth, and he will first destroy all the other kingdoms of this world. So there will be only one kingdom, his kingdom, 
and it will have nothing to do with human agency. Cut out without human hands. Has nothing to do with people bringing in the kingdom. We can't bring it in. He's going to bring in his own kingdom. And he is waiting for all the nations to hear, and he is waiting for Israel to be saved. And then he will establish his kingdom. We want Israel to be saved because we don't desire for any to perish and because their salvation will be greater blessing for all, specifically the coming of the kingdom of Christ. God has a remnant now within Israel and later it will be the whole of Israel. Israel has been hardened by God. That hardening is a response to their willful unbelief and refusal to subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That hardening is partial and that hardening is temporary. At this time, Israel are often, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel are often the enemies of the gospel, but they are still beloved of God. God's gifts and calling upon Israel and upon the believer are irrevocable. You can't lose your salvation. We are secure in Christ. And then finally, we can lose the blessing if we walk in unbelief and disobedience. The blessing that God wants to have through us to others can be lost. I said finally, but one more point. God's design is to show mercy to all. And he does that by closing our mouths. No objection. Only surrender. In all our lives, even after we're saved, God is just wanting to keep us in a place of surrender and a place of thankfulness. There is nothing that we deserve. Absolutely nothing. And everything we have, we have only by the grace and mercy of God. All we can do is receive. And say, God, I don't understand a lot that's going on in this world. I look at Israel and I say, man, just the fact that they're still around tells me there's a God. Because there is, seriously, there is no explanation why the Jewish people would still be the distinct people they are, except if there is a God who is superintending their existence. Because we know they have an enemy, and he has spent the last 2,000 years trying to wipe them off the face of this earth, and he is still attempting to do so. He will not succeed. They have an enemy, but they have a God. They're not walking with their God, but he is absolutely committed to them and they will be saved. He is absolutely committed to us, and as he is looking for Israel, simply surrender. Shut your mouth. Quit trying to argue with me that you have some righteous standing on the basis of your own merit, and simply shut up and receive. Come under the mercy of God. And nothing's changed. That's how we came to faith in Christ. Said, God, I have nothing to offer. And my mouth is closed. I am a man of disobedience. And you are a holy and righteous God. The only way I could have ever been saved was to recognize my sin, my desperate need, and come before God in humility and receive. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. And that's the same way we live. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. I have nothing to offer, nothing to claim, All I can come is receive. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let me close us in prayer.